God in heaven, thank you that we can come to a time where we open your scriptures together and discuss them and hear them read and proclaimed and study them. I pray that you would carry them to our hearts and our minds with your spirit, even pricking our conscience where need be. Drawing us in, compelling us to understand and to follow and to obey. Would you grant us insight? Would you grant us clarity? Would you please bless this time? In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Back to verse 24 this morning, as we continue what we looked at last week, discussing the truth about real Christian ministry. What's the truth about real Christian ministry? Last week we highlighted, or I highlighted, that there was, in my estimation, a real confusion concerning the purpose and ministry of the church at large and the Christian life. I think most people are confused about exactly what they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to be doing it. I think most churches are confused about such things. And I believe that if you surveyed any number of churches um, and asked them what the purpose of their existence was, I think you would find out very quickly most people are confused. Why are we here? What does God have for us? What would God have us to do? Because of this confusion concerning the purpose of the church, the role and ministry of the Christian, I maintained from last week that our churches carry very little weight and reach very few people. That's because when we are confused about our purpose and confused about our ministry, we lose what makes us us. We lose what makes the people of God distinct in this world. And our distinction is what makes us attractive and what makes us appealing and what makes us unique and what makes us effective. And so if you remove the distinction, you remove the efficacy, you remove the attraction, you remove the appeal. In other words, I think the church today by and large in our society and our culture is too worldly. We look too much like the world. We operate too much like the world. We have lost our distinction because we are confused about our purpose. In fact, if you look at most agendas of the church today, most functions or programs or ministries or initiatives of the church today, instead of being distinct, you would find that there's little to no difference between the church at large and other secular charitable organizations. We engage in the same kind of benevolence, the same kind of mission, the same kind of work, reaching the same kind of people doing the same kind of efforts, and there's little that sets us apart. And yet, as God's people, we are to be the most set apart. Last week, I began to identify two things that I think would help us clarify the real truth about Christian ministry. The first one was that every Christian is called to Christian ministry without exception. Every one of us have an honored, privileged part to play in advancing the gospel, in advancing the kingdom, and in glorifying God. 
There is no exception to that. It doesn't matter your skill or ability or life stage or the place that you live or the place that you work or, or anything like that. If you're a Christian, you're called to Christian service. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to serve on behalf of Jesus. That means we are to be living in, working in, conversing in, existing in the name of Christ as one of His distinct earthly servants. We also identified last week that if we're going to clarify the purpose of the church, then we must identify that very narrow, very specific calling from God. It's that very narrow, specific calling that makes us, as I said, who we are. Most churches have viewed the decline in attendance and and even worse, the decline in conversions. And they've wondered what to do about such things. And so their answer has been to become as much like the world as possible so we can be inviting and welcoming and reach people. And so they do big events. They water down Christian truths. Compromise Christian convictions. Even going so far to deny the gospel itself and deny other biblical truths. We're seeing that happen and take place. In fact, the second or the third largest Protestant denomination in the world is set for a vote this coming May to split. It was made known this week. The United Methodist Church has identified doctrinal differences that are beyond reconciliation And so in May, there's a proposal to split the United Methodist Church. You know what they're splitting over? Homosexuality. Because there's a faction in that church that believes if we're going to reach the world, we have to assimilate into the culture of the world. We have to accept what the world accepts and do what the world does and operate like the world operates. Unless you think that's just a Methodist problem, that's a Southern Baptist problem. There's people convinced that if we're going to reach the world for Christ, we have to be like the world. So come May, you will find two new Methodist denominations. If their vote passes and it looks like it will, you'll find the United Methodist Church who believes in homosexuality and homosexual clergy. And you will find a new denomination called traditional Methodists. Who believes in the sufficiency of Scripture in opposition to same-sex marriage and things like that. As I said, that's not just a Methodist thing. Those things have been discussed in our own denomination. And what's the issue? Why are those things being brought up? Why are those things such an issue? It's because churches are trying to reach the world and they're forgetting their purpose and they're forgetting their calling and they're forgetting that they're supposed to be distinct in this, this world that we live in. The answer for you and I to reach people for Christ isn't to become like the people we're trying to reach. The answer to reach people for Christ is by becoming like Christ. Paul hits on this very same principle in another letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I believe he's hinting on this principle, this distinctive 
existence of the church. He's talking about spiritual gifts, the, the end of chapter 14, specifically prophecy. And how that's supposed to operate and work within a church setting and even in regards to unbelievers. And in verse 24. First Corinthians 14, he says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all in verse 25 and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What's what's Paul saying there? He's saying it's not coddling the unbeliever. It's not catering to the unbeliever. It's not becoming like the unbeliever that will convict them and open their eyes to meet and see God. It's by being distinct as the church and engaging in our calling of proclaiming the truth of Scripture that will open the eyes of the lost world around us and get them to see, as much as they may hate it, get them to see the truth about God. So compromising scriptural convictions or muddying or blurring the line or confusing our purpose is not the solution to reach more people. It's the exact opposite. It's maintaining who we are in Christ that makes the church beautiful and glorious and effective and attractive. We are the only ones with the keys to the kingdom. We're the only ones with the gospel message of salvation. We're the only ones who belong to Jesus Christ. And maintaining that clear divide by knowing, clarifying, and remembering our very specific calling in ministry. Church, that's what makes us who we are. That's what makes us effective. That's what advances the gospel and furthers the kingdom of God and God's agenda in this world. That's what Paul's getting at in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. He's been highlighting his ministry. And by extension, it's our ministry. And Paul isn't like the leaders of the world. He isn't like the philosophers of the time. He's not like um, other religious leaders of the time. His ministry is different. His ministry is set apart. His ministry is unique. It is in one word, supernatural. And as such, our ministry is supposed to be supernatural. I hope I remember to mention it, but if I don't, by the time we get to verse 29 of Colossians chapter 1, we should be reminded that the only way we can carry out Christian ministry is by the enabling of God, by the strength that He supplies to us. The power, the energy that Paul references in verse 29. That's because our calling is is not only specific and narrow, but supernatural. We began looking last week in verse 24, and we talked about the first mark of Christian ministry is the mark of sacrifice, joyful sacrifice, or joyful suffering, whichever word you really want to use. That's, that's on the horizon for all Christians. I found it personally humbling, confusing, meaningful. But as I was laboring to you last week in preaching, the very time while I'm preaching, telling you that suffering is on the horizon for Christians, there's a gunman in a church in Fort Worth, Texas. 
That's on the horizon. That's the reality for God's people. I know very little about that church, but I know the truth about suffering. I know the the truth about sacrifice. If we're going to take a stand for God's word, if we're going to engage in Christian ministry, as you and I are called to engage in Christian ministry on both an individual and a corporate level as a church, suffering and sacrifice are required. So the first mark of Christian ministry we talked about last week is sacrifice, joyful sacrifice, suffering. In other words, following Christ in this world, wholeheartedly being devoted as we are ought to as we ought to be devoted, as we are to be devoted, may be costly. May cost you everything. Like it does our brothers and sisters around the world today, many of whom we've never met and won't meet. Yet we know their stories, don't we? They've lost property. They've lost families. They've lost life. They've lost liberties. If you've interacted with any of the international students who attend our church on any given Sunday, you'll learn that's even a reality for some of them. Even in other democratic societies. As I interact with international students... It's not so much a lack of understanding that prevents them to follow Christ. It's the thought of what my family will think. Or rejecting my family religion. Following Christ, standing for Christ, even engaging in Christian ministry, it's costly church. We talked about two ways in which you might have to sacrifice last week. You might have to sacrifice voluntarily or by force. Voluntarily is those things that we give up so that we might honor Christ with our lives. We don't engage in immorality. We don't engage in gossip or lying or this or that or the other. Because we don't want to bring reproach upon our Lord. That's voluntarily sacrificing our luxuries or other things in this life to be obedient to Christ. There's a forced kind of sacrifice. And that's where Paul's at in verse 24. He's in prison, writing to this church, suffering for their sake. And yet he writes and says, I rejoice. I'm suffering in the place of Christ, in the name of Christ, for the good of the body of Christ. Remember, as confusing as verse 24 might be, we highlighted that what Paul is not saying is he's not adding to the redemptive work of Jesus. The context, specifically verses 15 through 23, tells us that Christ is not only supreme over all things, but sufficient to save us, to reconcile us to God. There is no need to add to his work. Instead, Paul is saying, I'm being hated and suffering because the world hates our Savior and wants him to suffer. And so he stands in the gap and he stands up for Christ. He's devoted to the truth of Scripture uncompromisingly, and he is Suffering, again, standing for Christ may cost you. But are not the results entirely worth it? True and genuine conversions and faithful obedience to Jesus is worth the sacrifice. And so Paul writes in verse 24, I rejoice that I'm suffering. Peter and John in Acts chapter 5 return rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Glad that they can sacrifice so that God's agenda and God's fame and Christ's glory might go forth. That is so counterintuitive to our fleshly natures, isn't it? We exist for ourselves. And we want an easy and a comfortable and a good life. 
We want to be happy and we want to be free. And we want to have liberty and joy and, and all these great and glorious things that God blesses us with. And we live for ourselves and we live for our plans and we live for our agenda. But Christ says, follow me and lay down yourself and live for my agenda and live for my glory and live for my exaltation. To do that, you will have to sacrifice. Well, as we come into verse 25 this morning, we find out what real Christian ministry is. It's this very specific, narrow calling, task, whatever word you might want to use. And let me stress again the importance of this or the urgency of understanding this. It's because we are all always prone, as Christians and churches alike, to be sucked into the never-ending cycle and never-ending pursuit of numbers and, and crowds and, and manipulated revival and, and all of those other things we define success by. If you ask the average Christian what, what looks like a successful church, what do they look like, you would hear them talk about big, large, very busy churches. That's because we're prone to measure everything by that standard. We're, we're prone to be sucked into the praise of, of people. But Paul says that's not how we define success. That's not what our calling is. In fact, this will take thought and maybe difficulty to swallow, but I would maintain our calling isn't even to try to reach as many people as we can. And I say that with caution. Our calling is really much more narrow and much more specific and much more detailed than that. Our calling is faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. Everything else outside of that realm is up to God. Our influence in this world, our influence in this community is up to God. He gives us influence. He gives us reach. He gives us the ability to speak into others' lives. He's placed people in your own life to reach. That's without doubt and without question. But our goal is not to gain a following. Our goal is to be faithful, to proclaim the message of the gospel, where God has us, when God has us, and how God has us. Success is not defined by a bunch of people attending because then we can say any heretic is successful. Success is defined by staying true to the gospel. So that's what Paul talks about. I'm suffering for Christ in verse 25. For the body of Christ of which I became a minister. According to the stewardship from God. That was given to me for you. To, and here's his purpose statement for his ministry. To make the word of God fully known. Let me say, let's try to get the gospel to as many people as we possibly can while we're in this life. Absolutely, without doubt. But let our first concern be faithfulness to the truth. If we get the first concern wrong, if we're not faithful to the gospel, it doesn't matter how many ears hear our message. We want people to hear, we want people to be saved, but first, we have to be faithful to the message. That's what Paul's getting at here. I, I'm given a stewardship. I'm given a calling. I'm given a mission. I'm given a task to make the word of God known. Not to compromise. Not to assimilate into the culture. 
Not to gain a following, not to gain popularity, not to gain the praise of, of people or a large budget or this or that. I'm put here to make the Word of God fully known. In Acts chapter 22, we see this calling of Paul from Christ. Paul's recounting it himself. Verse 1 through 21 is really Paul recounting his calling, his conversion. And in verse 21 especially, he repeats what the Lord said to, to him. The Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's what he's telling the Colossian believers here in verse 25. I'm here for you, and I'm suffering for you, and I'm standing for you, and I'm proclaiming for you to make the Word of God fully known to you as Christ commissioned me to do so. That's the same calling you and I have. To be faithful to make the Word of God fully known where we're at as God has us. Let me try to take apart this purpose statement for just a moment. Because I think the individual words help us um, understand exactly what we are to be doing. First, I, I want you to notice this action word, make. Paul says, I'm making the word of God known. I'm taking steps. I'm being active. I'm carrying forth a task. I'm laboring to do something. That's because understanding the truth of God requires effort. There's this beautiful paradox with the Scriptures. The Gospel message is simple enough that a child can understand it and believe, and yet profound enough that you and I may spend the rest of our lives and never mind the depths of it. But the truth is, also still, the Scriptures don't just unfold themselves. And they certainly don't do so to unbelievers. If the Word of God is going to be known, it must be the the pillar and the buttress of the truth, the church who makes it known. It's us who has the message. It's us who has the Spirit in illuminating to us the, the truth of Scripture. And we have to put forth the effort. We have to labor so that they are made clear. The second word to look at is the word fully. Paul sees his ministry and his calling as comprehensive in terms of proclaiming truth. Which means he's not isolating and neither do we get the opportunity to isolate parts of Scripture or only focus on or read or pick or preach our favorite portions, but we have to declare it all. We have to be faithful to the whole counsel of God. We have to study it all, share it all, proclaim it all. That deals both with gospel proclamation and with general preaching and discipleship. We have to talk about sin. We have to talk about the need for repentance. We have to tell people as, as uh, much as they may hate it and as much as you may hate hearing it, we have to tell people there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. It's only through Christ. We have to take a stand and say abortion is evil in the sight of God. We have to take a stand and say homosexuality by God's standard is wrong. And on top of that, so is adultery and so is gossip and so is slander and so is lying. So is idolatry. Those are things nobody wants to hear. Nobody wants to be confronted with. And yet we fully make the word of God known. We stand upon the truth of God and declare the whole counsel of God's agenda. Unwaveringly. 
Third, that word known is important. I'm making the word of God fully known. It implies the mind and learning. It, it implies teaching and sharing. You and I engage the mind of people with the scriptures. Now certainly that word, if we carry it out, can not only mean the mind, but it means the heart also. We want people to know the Word of God even in their hearts. But that aspect is up to God. You and I will never influence the heart of a person. Only God can reach in and touch the heart. We're called to engage the mind. We share the truth of God's Word so that people may hear it with their ears, engage their minds, and let God through that engage their heart. Christianity is not based on some mystical experience. It's based on understandable truth and reality. As God reveals it in His Word. So we make the Word of God known. We study it ourselves. We immerse ourselves in it. We know it well enough that we can share it with others. And then focus, lastly, fourthly, on the phrase Word of God, for that is the bedrock foundation that we stand on. It is the tool we use to reach this universe, this world. The world doesn't need our opinions. It doesn't need our ideas or our innovations. It doesn't need our agenda. The world, world needs the Word of God made known to them. The world needs to know God's view of sin and God's view of salvation. The world needs to know God's offer of redemption and His plan of redemption. God, the world needs to know that God's Son is Jesus and that only through Jesus can one be saved. Church, it's never about making ourselves known. It's never about making Trinity popular. It's always about making the Word of God known. And always about making Christ popular. Popular, exalted, glorious. So Paul says, this is my task. This is my calling. And this is, church, the real truth about Christian ministry. We may engage in a bunch of other things. We may do other things together. But I firmly believe if it doesn't lead to this, making the truth of God known, then we have failed in our ministry and our calling and our task. By all means, care for the widow and care for the orphan and care for the poor. Those are scriptural mandates. But as you're doing it, do it, do it with, a, with an eye to this, making the gospel known. If we ever stop short of making the word of God fully known, we have missed our calling. We have missed the very reason that we exist. The very reason we're gifted. The very reason we're saved. The reason you and I aren't ushered into eternity at the moment of our regeneration, is so that we may stick around like Paul and make the Word of God fully known to this wretched and desperate and dying world around us. So I say that our calling, our task, our Christian ministry is very narrow. It's very specific. We might use a, a, a number of means to get to it, but this is it. This is our singular calling. In this, we find evangelism. In this, we find discipleship. 
In this we find the glory of God. You and I are called to know the word of God well enough to share it. To share it with the lost. To share it with our children. To share it with our grandchildren. To share it with our friends and our other family members. To share it with our co-workers. And I know the common objections to such a statement. Most people feel the exact same way that I feel. I'm inadequate to do so. Who among us knows everything that needs to be known about the Bible? Who among us feels entirely equipped and able all the time to share God's truth? None of us do. God's not calling us to all preach. He's not calling us all to teach a Sunday school class. He's not all calling us to stand on the street corner and proclaim the word of God. He's calling us to engage in relationships. He's calling us to engage in conversation over the truth of Christ. So every Christian is called to Christian ministry. And this is what Christian ministry is. Making the truth of God known. What is that truth? In verse 26, Paul goes on. He calls it a mystery. And that's a great word because it is a mystery. Both in terms of an unbeliever not understanding. He tells us that in Corinthians. That unbelievers don't understand spiritual things because they're spiritually discerned. But even for the Christian... The gospel truth has mystery to it. How can a God love people like us? Where does that love spring forth from? How is that love so comprehensive? There's mystery in the gospel. Paul uses this word in a a number of other places. Ephesians primarily. He'll use it again in Colossians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 4. He uses it in Galatians Sometimes he uses it to refer to the gospel. Sometimes he uses it to refer to the result of the gospel. Like the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. But he goes on in this text to tell us this mystery has been hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed to the saints. It's revealed because God chose, in verse 27, to make it known, there's the phrase again, to make it known how great among the Gentiles, or even in the Gentiles, are the riches of the glorious glories of this mystery. And, and what is this mystery? It is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the glorious, the riches of the glory of the mystery of the Word of God. Christ in you and I. And it is a mystery. Supernaturally, we're indwelt by the, by the Savior. That phrase is less about asking Christ into your heart. That's, that's a, in church history, that's a relatively recent terminology. It's less about asking Christ in your heart, as we normally say. And it's more about union with Christ. The hope of your glory, the hope of eternity in heaven with God, is your union with Christ. The Scriptures actually much more frequently use the phrase of us being in Christ, not Christ in us. But both are getting at the same thing, united to Jesus. So when we're asking about salvation, we're really asking, are you united to Christ? When I ask somebody, what's the evidence that you're saved? What's the evidence that you're going to be in heaven? What's your assurance? It's my union with Christ. 
I'm, I'm going to have eternal life because I'm united to the one who lives eternally. I, I have righteousness in God's sight because I'm united to the one who's righteous. I, I'm holy and I'm pure and I have faith because I'm united to the one who possesses such things. My union with Christ is everything for my salvation. And that's what Paul's getting at here. What are we proclaiming? It's this mystery. Well, what is this mystery? It is your union with the Savior. You and I are called to proclaim the opportunity to be united to Jesus. And to also say that without union with Jesus, you will not be in glory. You have no hope of eternal life. If Christ isn't consuming you and you aren't consumed by Christ, then you don't know salvation. You don't have to have a seminary degree to proclaim such glorious truths. You don't have to know the latest theological developments or research to be able to have an eternal gospel impact. You simply have to be faithful to that message that God offers salvation through His Son and only through His Son. And by His grace, you can be united to His Son. And when you are, you'll be saved for all eternity. Church, that's our very narrow, very specific calling and task. What does it look like to engage that calling? To exercise that calling? How do we do it? Well, verse 28 and verse 29 tell us what faithful Christian ministry looks like. I exist, Paul says. I'm suffering. I'm sacrificing. To make the Word of God fully known, this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Him we proclaim, or Him I proclaim. Faithful Christian ministry involves proclamation. Again, I would say here, more so in the context of relationships and conversations than in the context of events or programs. In fact, I think it's imperative that we declutter our church calendar and prioritize relationships and conversations because much more gospel ministry happens that way. That's where we see gospel ministry taking place in the New Testament. People being brave enough to have a conversation about Christ. People seizing the relationships they have to share the truth about God. Him we proclaim, not from a stage or a platform necessarily, but in relationships and conversation and and how are we proclaiming Him? He uses two words. Warning and teaching. Warning everyone that God brings to us. Everyone we come in contact with. Everyone God allows us to share with. And teaching everyone. It's important to understand that word warning. Paul might tell us that you would not be faithful to proclaim the Gospel if you didn't proclaim the warning. What is the warning? What are we to warn people of? Impending judgment. That is probably the most unpopular message. Even in Christian circles. I find most Christians are willing to hear somebody say the word sin. But if you really want to see them squirm, mention judgment. God's judgment is real. And it's inescapable. If you're not in Christ, you stand before the 
creator of all things and you will give an account. Very haunting word. Let me see if I can find it. A very haunting phrase. I believe it's in Hebrews chapter 4. I know it's in Hebrews. I've referenced it several times. Here it is. Hebrews 4 verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is nowhere to run. And there is nowhere to hide. And if I make my bed in Hades, behold God, you are there also. You might be good at hiding the secrets of your heart from your friends and your family members, but you will never have a secret from God. As we are faithful to our very specific calling and task, that faithfulness looks like warning everyone Judgment is coming. And it hangs over you like an impending cloud. And either by your last breath or by the end of all creation, it will be thrust upon you in the blink of an eye as a thief comes in the night to steal. Be warned. Judgment is real and it's coming. And everyone will account for their sin. But as we proclaim God, we don't just warn, we teach. We teach the truth of God and the truth of salvation. We teach of God's love, don't we? That God's a merciful God and a gracious God. And there is a way, there is a way to be saved. To have judgment averted. To be made righteous. To have your sin washed away. To be made right before God, there is a way where you don't have to fear death, but embrace death as the gateway to glory. We teach everyone with all wisdom about the glorious truth of salvation in Jesus. That's being faithful to proclaim this mystery. Why do we proclaim it this way? Verse 28, we proclaim with a warning, we proclaim with teaching, we share the truth about the gospel so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Another way of saying that is that we may present everyone saved before God. Everyone fully confirmed in Christ. Everyone ready to enter into eternity. That's, that's a, a verse I have lodged in my heart and my mind as a pastor. We proclaim a warning and teaching so that you may be presented before God mature in Christ. Ready to stand before the Father. Ready to give an account in the Son. Ready to enter into glory. Paul says in verse 29, it's this, for this I toil, for this I wrestle, I labor, I struggle with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Christian ministry is very narrow, very specific. It is founded on and revolves around making the gospel known. And how do we make that gospel known faithfully? We proclaim it through warning and teaching so that people might be found in Christ mature. And how do we do that? How do we be faithful to our Christian calling? It's by the strength that God provides, but also working in that strength. 
In verse 29, we see this dual existence of our responsibility and God's enabling. We toil. We struggle. We work. You have a responsibility to be active. We used the word last week, you cannot be idle in your Christian faith. You're not to be a spiritual glutton in your knowledge of the Christian faith. You work, you, you exercise, you, you engage in activity in regards to your Christian faith, but also alongside with and under the enabling power of God's energy and power that He works within us. God upholds His end. God enables, God equips, God has, has gifted you with the ability to share the gospel. To tell somebody of the wonderful experience you've had in your own life of regeneration and redemption. God through His Spirit will enable you to do that every time. Usually the equation falls apart on our end. Toiling and struggling with the enabling that God has given us. Would you work and would you toil in the name of Christ to be faithful to this ministry that He's called you to? I hope our answer is yes. Why is Paul willing to suffer and sacrifice? Why is Paul willing to let his whole life, as complex and beautiful as it, as it could be, why is he, is he willing to make it so focused and so narrow? Why is he to engage in things that, that aren't popular, like warning everyone? Why is he going to characterize his life as toiling and struggling? It's because he truly believes in that which he's proclaiming. He truly believes, really believes, that the only way to be right with God is in Christ. He really believes that his singular purpose of existence is to make the Word of God fully known. He really believes and is really convinced that clarifying the truth of God's gospel is what saves people, is what makes a difference, is what makes a person's life count. He really believes that success is found in sharing gospel truth about Jesus. Even if you're in prison, even if nobody likes you, even if you're relatively unknown, even if you don't have a whole bunch of money, and even if life is hard, Paul seems to really be convinced that this is what makes a life count. This is what matters in this existence. That this is what's most pleasing to God. The question for every Christian in every church today is, do we believe that? Do we believe that out of all the things that we could be doing, out of all the things we're tempted to do, out of all the opportunities we can engage in, do we really, truly, wholeheartedly believe that the number one thing we can give ourselves to is glorifying God by making His gospel known? Are we convinced to the point of sacrifice? Are we convinced to the point of suffering? That of all the opportunities out there and all the promises and all that exists for us to do, the best thing, the only thing we need to give ourselves to is making these truths known. I don't think the issue with most churches comes down to ability 
or even to a degree willingness. I think the thing that prevents most churches from engaging in real Christian ministry is conviction. I'm not convinced that most people who say they are convinced are convinced that the word of God is all they need to capitalize on so that the kingdom would be advanced. I'm not sure many people are really convicted that the greatest thing they can spend their lives doing is clarifying the truth of the gospel. I think this comes down to a matter of conviction. Why can this man sit in prison and write? Why can this man be persecuted over and over? Why can this man ignore all the opportunities afforded his way? He is, uh, remember Philippians chapter 3, zealous, he's a Pharisee, he's the elite of the elite. Everything Paul could have ever wanted in Jerusalem would have been laid at his feet. Why would he give all of that up? He is truly convinced this is his calling. And we ought to be equally convinced this is our calling. We are people who exist to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages that Christ can be in you. That your hope for glory is union with Christ alone. Maybe we should pray that we would taste such a truth so that we would give ourselves over to such a task. Father, Your Word enables us to do what we are called to do. Trains us, teaches us, it equips us. It shows us what is right, it shows us what is wrong. So often we approach our existence by our own invention or our own worldly standards. We live by our own definitions. But I believe what Paul's describing of his own ministry is the ministry of us all. It's the ministry of every Christian. It's the ministry of every church. And I believe, God, with all my heart, that if we confuse that ministry, if we confuse that purpose, we are ineffective, even dangerous. But if we have it clarified for us, if we are convicted of it, if we are convinced that proclaiming your gospel is all we need to give ourselves to, and we need to give ourselves to a wholeheartedly, and with every ounce of energy and effort and resource we can possibly muster, if we're convinced of that, if we have our purpose made clear to us, God, I believe you will use us mightily for your kingdom. Oh, Father, would you help us not to be distracted people? Spending ourselves in lesser ways than we should. And make us a people passionate about the gospel. Passionate about proclaiming it. Passionate about standing for its full, entire, comprehensive truth. Passionate about warning and teaching everyone. Passionate about seeing people mature in you. May we say with Paul at the end of our lives, it's for this reason I toiled, I 
struggled with all that you gave me. That you would be glorified as your word is made known. In your name, Lord Jesus, we ask for this help. Amen.